You can't study through 1 Peter. I don't think. Personally, I can't. I can't study through 1 Peter and not think of the pastor of the largest so-called church in America. Uh, 30,000 people show up in Houston, Texas uh, to hear him. I wouldn't call it preaching. I may be talking. Um, and I, I, presumably there are 100,000 or more people listening to him uh, on his international uh, television broadcast. He had a best-selling book some years ago entitled Your Best Life Now. Some of you will recognize the title of that book. Uh, his name is Joel Osteen. Uh, in the first three sections of the book, Osteen, Osteen's primary focus is on financial success and material gain. On page five, he says this. Contrary, of course, again, This is contrary to the explicit teaching of Scripture, but he explains that this quest for financial and material gain actually pleases God. When God's people are focused on uh, making money and focused on material gain, this pleases God. He goes on to say, God wants you to experience His blessing primarily in physical, financial, and social ways. On page 38, he said, God wants to make your life easier. He absolutely butchers Hebrews, pardon me, Ephesians 2.7, telling us that God wants everyone to be, oh, can you guess? Rich. To live in God's far and beyond favor in health, abundance, healing, and victory. To obtain all these blessings, the reader is never told to ask God for them. He's simply told he needs to, oops, he needs to, Think faith-filled thoughts and speak faith-filled words. All you have to do, this is the word of faith stuff, is declare. You just declare. You just declare. And God's obligated to respond to your declaration. At the core of Osteen's self-esteem, self-help, psychobabble theology is that becoming a Christian is a sure glide path to health Wealth and prosperity. But what does God have to say? What does God have to say? First Peter, pardon me, first Timothy six, four through five. God says this about those who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. God says such teachers are conceited and they understand nothing. God says they advocate a different doctrine. God says they are men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Some of you already know what text I'm going to go to to utterly refute the health, wealth, and prosperity sham gospel. I'm going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9-11. through Let me just read to you what God says. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. Then he gives Timothy uh, (laughs) some pretty explicit instructions. He says, But you, O man of God, flee from these things. Don't pursue these things. You flee from these things. 
This is the Word of God. Whereas Osteen talks about your best life now, if we've actually read our Bibles, we understand that Jesus talks about our best life forever. Amen? Whereas Osteen talks about temporal health, abundance, healing, and victory, Jesus Christ speaks of, if we actually read the Gospels, He speaks of temporal persecution, self-denial, self-sacrifice, and suffering, and even martyrdom. Jesus told His disciples that men would hate them on account of His name. He told them that men would lay hands on them and persecute them. Jesus told His men that they would be put to death because of the Gospel. And then Jesus said this in Luke 21.13, This will be your opportunity for your testimony. When the hard thing comes, when the trial comes, when the heat comes, when the persecution comes, this is your time for your testimony. You know that, beloved. That's what 1 Peter is all about. Be strong. Be courageous. Be the people of God when it gets hard. God hasn't put us here simply to prosper us. Why has He put us here? What are the two problems that we can impact as Christians? The two most pressing problems in the cosmos? What are they? Anybody remember? Jesus Christ is profaned and men are perishing. That's why we're here. If you read 1 Peter, you realize we're here for something infinitely more than simply being comfortable. Infinitely more than simply uh, being prosperous. It means so much more to be a Christian than those really base kind of things. It means so much more than that. And so it was for the disciples. Church tradition tells us that James, the brother of John, he was beheaded. Philip was scourged and crucified. Matthew was axed to death. James was stoned by the Jews. Thomas was run through with a spear. Peter was crucified upside down. Simon was crucified in Britain. Matthias, who took Judas's place, was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. Andrew, Thaddeus, Bartholomew were crucified in Asia. Of course, we know Paul chronicles his great sufferings in propagating the Gospel. Paul ultimately being beheaded in Rome. As I was thinking about these things, I couldn't help but imagine Joel Osteen in his $2,000 suit telling Paul, Peter, and John, and Andrew, and Matthias, you just need to think faith-filled thoughts and speak faith-filled words. And I thought to myself, what a joke that would be. God is a full disclosure God. He reveals in His Word that His people will encounter suffering. He never promises health wealth, and prosperity. Nowhere in the Bible is that promise ever made in a temporal sense. If we read our Bibles and understand them, we know that the lion's share of God's blessings are what? Beyond the grave. We will suffer here. Read your Bible. I don't know how these guys get away with it, really. I mean, obviously people just simply don't read their Bibles. They just don't open up their Bibles and read them. I don't know how these guys get away with this stuff. I really don't. It's astonishing to me. It really is astonishing to me. God says 
These are biblical words. I took them from Scripture. God says, My people will suffer afflictions, hardships, distresses, trials, difficulties, rejection, poverty, loss, pain, suffering, sorrow, sickness, tribulations, dangers, and death. This is what God promises to His disciples. Oh yes, guess what else Jesus promises? That I am so good. I am so satisfying. I will fill your soul. I will fill your soul to the degree that the suffering doesn't matter. That's why I read that text. Oh God, Your loving kindness is better than life. Amen? That's biblical Christianity. Your loving kindness is better than prosperity. Your loving kindness is better than health. Your loving kindness is better than material success. Your loving kindness is better than everything. This is what the Christian knows. The born-again Christian. I'm not talking about just the church member and the cultural Christian. I'm talking about the born-again believer understands that Jesus is so satisfying. I will suffer deprivation for Him. If it propagates His glory... And it spreads the Gospel in the world. Every hard thing in this life will be swallowed up by His sufficiency and His beauty and His greatness. Beloved, when we suffer, it is a platform to display the glory of God. That's, what the, that's part of what the suffering is about. That you'll, 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 you'll display to your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving family members, your unbelieving co-workers, your unbelieving fellow students. I can go through this hard thing and praise God because He's so satisfying. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need the world's trinkets. I don't need cash in my pocket. I don't need these things. I'm a child of the King. Beloved, you know this, right? You're a child of the King. You're a child of the King. Yes, health is a great blessing. And God gives it to many of us. But it is not the ultimate blessing. Wealth is a great gift from God. But it is not the consummate gift from God. Prosperity is a good thing. But it is not the best thing. It is not the most important thing. Listen to Piper, John Piper, well-known preacher in the States. The false health, wealth, and prosperity gospel swallows up the beauty of Christ in the beauty of His gifts, and He turns those gifts into idols. Men and women are exhorted to pursue the gifts, to love them, and want them more than God. That's the net result. That is the net Result. Real faith is utterly in love with all that God will be for us. This is John Piper. Beyond the grave. Real faith loves God more than job, money, dream houses, and retirement. Real faith loves God more than family. Real faith loves God more than life. Real faith says whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I love Him. He is my reward. Beloved, this is a biblical view of suffering. You know, I've told you this many, many times. I quote it quite often. John MacArthur had a woman in, her, in his church who went down to the local name it and claim it church, the local prosperity gospel church, right? She went down there. And about three years later, she came back. 
And he said, man, he said, what'd you come back for? He said, she said, they won't let me be poor and they won't let me be sick down there. I apparently don't have enough faith. If I had enough faith, I wouldn't be sick. If I had enough faith, I wouldn't be poor. Beloved, it is a lie. It is another gospel that is not the biblical gospel. And I, again, I, I don't understand how people, I really don't understand how people can fall for it. In 1 Peter, Peter has been saying to us, to his first century readers and to us as well, that persecution will come. Suffering will come. You have to always keep in mind who Peter is writing to. He's writing to a people who are under a fierce persecution. If you don't know that background, you miss much of the power of what's being said here. They are undergoing a fierce persecution. Some have been arrested, some in prison, some, some of their property has been seized, families have been broken up, some have been enslaved, some have been beaten, and some have been killed. Some of these people have lost everything. But Peter says you haven't lost the best thing. Someone tell me what that is. God. You cannot lose God. You can lose everything else in this life. Everything can simply be taken. Everything can fall away in this life, but not God. God is with you forever. I love that. And this is what Peter's saying. He's saying, buck up! I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But you're God's God. And your God's doing an awesome thing through your suffering. Christians don't suffer for no reason. There is a godly purpose in it. There is a godly purpose in it. They've lost a lot, but they haven't lost God. I want to say to you next time, loss and pain and suffering, grief, affliction, distress, and persecution come to you, and they will come. The Bible is clear, they will come. Not because you lack faith, but because your God is awesome and He's doing an awesome thing in your life. They w these things will come to you. And I keep telling you, don't be surprised when they come to you. You be ready when they come to you. You be prayed up and you have God's Word hidden in your heart. You be ready when the hard thing comes. And I want you to remember... All that is yours by the absolute free grace of God. I want you to remember how we started the book. Some of you weren't even here then. But as we started the book in the first chapter of 1 Peter, we saw that God has chosen us. Don't ever forget it. That's your strength on the hardest day. What else? God has redeemed us with His blood. God has indwelled us with His Spirit. God has caused us to be born again. God has prepared an inheritance for us. He is protecting us with His omnipotent power. God has ordained our trials and He is perfecting our faith through those trials. No trial has come to you apart from the sovereign purposes of God. Beloved, if you believe this, you can walk through anything praising the Lord. And that's the purpose. At least part of the purpose. And what was the outcome of all this God work that God does in His people? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, it is for the salvation of your souls. And who can undo what God has done? Who can separate 
God's people from Him? Who can? Nobody. You guys know what Romans 8 says. No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no peril or sword can separate us from the love of God. And this is the point of 1 Peter. Buck up, Christian! It's hard to walk with Jesus. It's hard sometimes. The world will hate you. The world will persecute you because the world hated Him. And the world murdered him. If we're, and I'm talking about cultural Christianity, I'm talking about biblical Christianity. If we actually live biblical Christianity, we've said it, I think we said it the last three weeks, I've got to say it again. You will be persecuted. It's a promise that Paul made to Timothy. I don't remember the, the text, I don't remember the, the address of the text. It's in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. Anyone who desires to live godly will be persecuted. Godly in Christ Jesus, that is. So, long introduction. Since uh, the first week of February, we've been talking about how um, verse 9, how that fleshes out in the life, um, what it looks like to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own Possession, we saw in verses 11 and 12 that we're called to live excellent alien lives. We saw in verse 13 to 17 that we are to be model citizens submitting to all earthly authority and every human institution. Last week, Peter reminded us that we are to be submissive servants even if we suffer unjustly, even if we suffer for doing what is right. And remember, last week we touched on verse 21 where the Holy Spirit says, You've been called for this purpose. What purpose was that? To live a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. To have a life of security, comfort, and ease. To have a life of popularity, status, and success. Was that the purpose we were called for? We are called. If you go back, pick up halfway through verse 20. If, when you do what is right, you suffer for it, patiently, enduring it, this finds favor with God. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Do you hear it, Christian? What what are we called to? Someone tell me from the text. We're called to suffer. You will suffer (laughs) if you're walking with Christ ultimately at some point in your life. This is part of what we're called to as Christians. You've been called for this purpose. To do what's right and suffer for it. And still love God. As Jesus told His disciples, this will be your testimony. When they come for you, and you love Me more. You love Me more than religion. You love Me more than recanting. You love Me more than to deny Me. You love me more than fear. You love me more. You love me more. So this is our job description. To do what's right. To be excellent, alien, model citizen, submissive servants in the world. To do what's right. And if we suffer, we endure it. 
Why? For this pleases God. That's what the text says. This pleases God. It's why, if you're a Christian tonight, if you're a born-again Christian tonight, it's why you're still on the planet. There's no other reason you're still on the planet but to bring glory to Jesus. Yes, we have peripheral responsibilities. We live our life here, of course. God understands that. But our principal purpose is to bring glory to Christ. This is what Peter's telling his readers, his first century readers who are undergoing a terrible, terrible persecution. This is what he's saying to them. This is what he is saying to us. As we said last week, we love this God so much. He satisfies our soul so much. He fills me up so much. I do not demand my rights. I can be victimized and simply let it go. I don't fight back. I don't lash out. I don't seek retribution. I don't seek revenge. I love God too much. Remember what we said? He's more important than the offense or the hurt or the pain. Even if it's unjust. God is more important than the offense. And I love Him more than I love retribution. I love Him more than I love revenge. Beloved, <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of life that, that God has called us to live. God is more important than the offense. I love God more than I love payback. I've told you last week, I think I've told you several times as we've gone through 1 Peter, you're not supposed to be surprised when the suffering comes. You're just supposed to be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prayed up? Do you have God's Word hidden in your heart? Are you ready? When it suddenly comes upon you at the university or suddenly comes upon you in the office or suddenly comes upon you in the neighborhood or even out in the world with some stranger, it suddenly comes upon you. Are you ready? Are you ready? To love God more than payback? To love God more than lashing out? To receive an unjust insult or offense? And simply return good for evil? Remember what we said last week? <laughs> this is not a rule you can keep. No man can keep this rule. This is beyond a man. A man cannot do this. How can a Christian do it? through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way we can do it. It's a supernatural thing. It's a miracle we experience. It's not a rule to keep. If you think, okay, I'll do that rule, you'll never do it. The only way you can do this is to be prepared to do this. You must desire to do this. You must have the discipline to do this. I will not pay back. I will receive unjust suffering and I will return good for evil. This is what God calls us to. I know it's hard. I don't feel like returning good for evil. I want payback. Don't you? Don't tell me you don't. I know you do. You know, it wells up in your heart and it enters your mind before you can stop it. It's in us. Payback is in us. God says, my people don't live like that. My people honor me by returning good for evil. Jesus is our example. Verse 21, He suffered for us, leaving an example for us to follow. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here. 
He says it this way, this is the kind of life you've been invited into, the kind of life lived, the kind of life Jesus lived. He suffered everything that came His way so you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. Verse 22 and 23, who committed no sin, Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. God, as you've heard me say many, many times, is always doing a billion things all at once. We can never fully parse or even begin to parse all that God is doing in one event. But we know God is doing at least two things in the crucifixion of His Son. He is saving a people for Himself and He is setting an example for us in how to suffer in a way that honors God. And I'm talking about persecution, suffering persecution. Christ's death, as we know, was a substitutionary atonement for us. He took our place and our punishment on the cross. Obviously, we cannot emulate Him or be like Him in that way. But we are called to be like Him in the way in which He suffered. There was no sin in His mouth. And when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. This is not rocket science. This is what God says. <laughs> are you willing to live like that? You know, man, when, you got that, when you've got that perfect comeback, isn't it sweet? You know, it's just sweet. You know, I've got that boom. Metaphorically, boom, sever their head. Right? There's a sweetness to that. There's a fallen, sinful sweetness to that. God says, my people don't live like that. My people do not live like that. They're like my son. There is no sin in his mouth. He says, they are like my son. We can't be sinless like Jesus. It's like I said to you earlier. The sin is in my heart and it wells up in my heart and it's in my mind almost before I can consciously stop it. Do you know what I'm talking about? But you know the one thing I can do? I can't be sinless like Jesus because my heart has sin in it. But you know what I can do? I can do what He did. I can shut up. Sometimes you just got to shut up. You know? Don't, isn't that right? Just shut up. <laughs> I don't care how justified you are. Shut up. Let there be no sin in your mouth with your spouse, with your children, with your co-worker, your co-student, your fellow church member. Let there be no sin in your mouth. This is what God says to us. And I want you to remember, I know you know this. Jesus was falsely accused. He was slandered. He was abused for doing what was right. Worse, He was hit. He was spat upon. He was scourged. And He was crucified. And there was no sin in His mouth. It's never going to be that bad for you. It's never going to be that bad for me. And there was no sin in his mouth. I got to thinking about it as I was studying. I was thinking, how much more godly my orbit would be sometimes if I would just shut up. 
<laughs> Can you relate to that? If I would just keep my mouth shut, it would be a much more godly environment sometimes. If I would just shut up and let there not be any sin in my mouth, even when I'm unjustly attacked, just shut up. Just shut up. There's something even more laudable here than the fact that Jesus held His tongue. Those of you who are familiar with the Gospels, Jesus not only held His tongue, He used His tongue in an amazing way. Some of the things He said from the cross, many of you are thinking of them now. Luke 23-34. One of the things Jesus did with His tongue in the midst of the most unjust persecution that has ever been perpetrated in the cosmos. Remember what He said? Father, forgive them. He didn't just hold His tongue. He prayed for His persecutors. Beloved, this is how we're supposed to receive unjust suffering. The other thing Jesus did, you remember Luke 23, 43? He was evangelistic. He told the, the criminal next to Him, today you will be with Me in paradise. He was still thinking about the souls of others. John 19.26, He was concerned for those around Him as He spoke to Mary and John, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He was in the midst of unjust suffering, but He wasn't self-absorbed and self-consumed. He was concerned about His mother in that moment. John 19.30, He was focused on completing His Father's work when He said, It is finished. Beloved, if you can remember those four things, next time you want to you know, bless somebody, remember. Remember this. Forgive. Evangelize. Make provision for others. And remember why you're here. Complete the mission for which you're here. To glorify Christ. Is it going to glorify Christ to you know, get a verbal response out there? Is that going to glorify Christ? No, it won't. And that's your mission. That's preeminently why you're here. It's to give testimony to who He is. Some of you are saying, wow, what if I could, could live like that? You say, Jim, Jesus was not only a man, He was God. I, I, I could never live like that. You know, there is a biblical example of a man living like that. Anybody, can anybody think of who it is? There were probably more than one, but one came to my mind. Remember Stephen? He was just simply preaching the Gospel. And as they stoned him to death, remember what he said? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So we know a man can do it. It's not that we can't do it. It's that we really don't want to do it. <laughs> I want to get payback. Man, I've got the best comeback. I want to use it. I want to inflict maximum pain with my words. Don't tell me you don't feel that. We all feel that. In our fallenness. But beloved, God is calling us to be disciplined with our tongue. To be disciplined with our tongue. 
We just need to surrender to the third member of the triune God who indwells us, the Holy Spirit. We have the enabling. We have the power. We just need to submit and obey. God says, My children do not use their mouths to curse, but to bless. They do not return evil for evil, but return good for evil. So what is Christ's confidence in leading, living like this? What is His theological foundation for building His life like this? It's, it's there in the last half of verse 23. Look what He says. He uttered no threats, but kept what? Entrusting Himself to God. Can you entrust yourself to God in the hard spot, in the persecution, in the trial, in the unjust offense? Can you trust yourself to God? Jesus just entrusted Himself to the Lord. There's a few things we probably should point out here. I believe He's trusting in the sovereignty of God. He knows the suffering has come through the hand of His Father. And He receives it. And He seeks to honor His Father in it. Beloved, that's how we're to receive suffering. This is not bad luck. Suffering is not bad luck. It has passed through our Father's hands. He is a sovereign God. Satan is dog on a leash. He's trusting in the sovereignty of His Father. He knows His Father is going to work good in this. What is the good that came through the suffering of Jesus? Someone tell me. Your salvation! God is always... You can't always parse it and explain it, but God is always working good in your suffering. You say, Jim, I'm suffering right now and I can't see the good. You don't have to see the good. You entrust yourself to your Father who is sovereign and is doing a good thing in you. You don't have to understand it. The Bible... Christianity is not about understanding it. <laughs> Christianity is about believing it and living it and trusting God who is sovereign. You may remember when we first got into 1 Peter, man, I couldn't get off this, but it made me think of this as I was thinking about these things. Persecution and trials do not come to the Christian because we're not loved. They come because we are loved. Because we are loved by God. Whom... Romans chapter 1 tells us the world hates. Trials and persecutions do not come to the Christian because we've been forgotten, but because we are ever present in the mind and heart of God. Not because we've been forsaken, but because we've been chosen. Not because we've been neglected, not because we are neglected, but because we are elected. Not because we are abandoned, but because we are adopted. Our suffering has a godly purpose and a godly end. It's not random. You know, the unbeliever, all their suffering is for naught. It's for naught. God is at work in our suffering. There's something beautiful going on in our suffering. We just have to believe it. We just have to trust it. That's what Jesus did. He trusted in the sovereignty. It was God. Secondly, He trusted in God's holiness and His righteousness and His inescapable judgment. We do not have to take revenge. God will do that. Amen? Romans 12.19 Never take your own vengeance, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have to take retribution. God will. So you keep your mouth shut. 
Don't take verbal retribution or any kind of retribution. No payback for you anymore. And if you fly off the handle and you attack verbally out of a desire for revenge, if you do it, then you go and you apologize to that person and you confess your sin to them. And say, I have sinned before my God. My God is Jesus Christ. And I'm not supposed to live like that. I'm supposed to honor Him. And what I said to you did not honor Him. Beloved, don't be too proud to go and apologize. You go apologize. That will be a huge witness to that person. Particularly if they're an unbeliever. They'll be astonished. That will have never happened to them ever before. Unless they have encountered a, a, a Christian somewhere along the way. Who understood 1 Peter chapter 2. So, verses 24 and 25, I'm almost done. Just briefly, two points from that, from verses 24 and 25. Christ Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus bore our sins on the cross not merely to save us, but also to begin the process of sanctification that we might begin to die to sin and live to righteousness. In this context, God is calling us to die to retribution, reprisal, revenge, and payback. We are not to engage in those things. Why? Because He is who He is. He is a sovereign God. He's got some purpose in this unjust suffering I'm going through. I'm going to trust this sovereign God. And He's a God of righteous judgment. He, gets, he will take revenge. I don't need to take revenge. It's really a lack of faith to take revenge because God says, I'll do that. You don't have to do that. It's not simply disobedience. It's a lack of faith to take revenge. I love the imagery here in verse 25. We were once straying sheep, but now we are following the shepherd. It's John chapter 10. It's John chapter 10. It's biblical Christianity. It's not about health, wealth, and prosperity, security, comfort, and ease, popularity, status, and success. We don't listen to false teachers who tickle our ears and we don't follow Pied Pipers with their counterfeit message. We follow the shepherd. Capital S. The beautiful warrior shepherd, Jesus Christ. We follow Him. We hear His voice. We follow Him. You know, it's the definition of Christianity. I say it to you all the time, but if someone says, give me one verse, I always go to John 10, 27. Jesus says, my people know me, they hear my voice, and they follow me. That's Christianity. They know me, they hear my voice, and they follow me. You remember... What Jesus said to His disciples. I've said it twice already. Regarding the suffering of His people, this will be your opportunity. When you suffer unjustly, without retribution, with no sin in your mouth, you will be a powerful witness for the reality and the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus. And that's what this is all about. That's really what this is all about. This is what our lives are all about. You say, Jim, I, I have to make a living. Of course you have to make a living. You honor God in your work. 
Well, I have to do this, I have to do that. Yes, honor God in all of that. But while you're honoring God in all of that, you're to be His witness. You're to be His ambassador. You're to be spreading the gospel, the glory of Jesus. Let Him be beautiful in the eyes of those in your orbit by the way you live and the way you speak. Let there be no sin in your mouth. Even when you are unjustly accused. And let your life be a testimony that Jesus Christ is infinitely better. He is infinitely better. I want to quote a guy from a t- you, uh, an American TV show, but I'm not going to resist. I'm not going to do it. Most of you would not get the reference, so forget that. But He is infinitely better. He is profoundly better than health, wealth, prosperity, security, comfort, ease, popularity, status, and success. He's infinitely better than any of this. And if any of us could actually truly see Him for just one nanosecond, we would understand. And we would never be tempted by those things again. It would be, it would just be our deepest joy to honor this beautiful God. This beautiful God who became a man, took on flesh, and was nailed to a tree because He loved me. And you're going to live for money? And you won't pay back? And it's about health, wealth, and success? You've got to be kidding me! As I often say, these things are simply too small for the born-again believer. Amen? These things are too small for us. I can't live for that. If that was the Gospel, if the Gospel was health, wealth, and prosperity, I wouldn't be a Christian. It's too small for me. I'm not interested in that stuff. I'm interested in knowing the living God, the Creator God, the Redeemer God, the God of the Bible, the God who fills my soul with joy. And not only joy, beloved, I hope you know this. If you're born again tonight, you'll know this. Not only only joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, but anticipation. Don't you have anticipation about the day you see and what all eternity will be like? Anticipation, beloved. I, oh, man, I just, this really helps me. I meditate on this frequently, what it would be like to be with Jesus. So I just want to say, as I often do, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of like a broken record, really. It's like, I don't know, if you hear me preach about five times, you've heard almost everything. And it's that Jesus is so good, I will not play religion anymore. I will not insult Him with that. I'm going to live it big because He's worthy to live it big. I'm going to obey Him out in the world and bring glory and honor to His name. I'm going to impact the two most pressing problems in the cosmos. That Jesus is profaned and men are perishing. That's my job. I get it. I understand it. I'm going to go live it. None of us do it perfectly. Certainly not me. But this is who we are called to be. So I pray that you'll let your life shout that Jesus Christ is better than anything this life can give. And Jesus Christ is better than anything death can take. I pray that will be the testimony of your life. We're going to celebrate the table tonight. If somebody will go get that. Thank you, Gary. Uh, I I apologize. I should have told you earlier in the service. I didn't realize it wasn't out. But we're going to celebrate the table tonight. And... uh, 
We have open communion here. So all in this room who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to come to the table. You know, I always one thing I always do is, as Paul told the Corinthians, I always warn uh, the body not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. Don't come to the table if you have sin in your life that you're not willing to repent of, that you're not willing to receive God's forgiveness for. Don't just don't come to the table, and don't come to the table in some ritualistic, um, you know, brain dead, heart dead way. This is some ritual I do. Don't come to the table if that's all it is. But if you love Him, and you realize what He's done for you, you know the table is that we would come and celebrate. We celebrate what this awesome God has done in our behalf. If you want to come and celebrate who He is and what He's done in your life, you want to come celebrate His greatness and His grace and His mercy and His glory. If you want to celebrate, then come. You know, come and and uh, take the cup and the bread. The way we do this is Paolo will play for three or four or five minutes, prepare your hearts, confess your sin. And if you want to join us in our celebration tonight, during the song, come up and take the cup, take the bread, go back to your seat, and after the song ends, I will stand and I will read a text, and then we will partake of the elements at that time. Prepare your hearts to honor Jesus Christ in this ordinance that He left for us.